As we come together here this morning, we are continuing to explore the topic of humble power. And I'd like to thank both Pastor Janet and Pastor Rick for kicking us off into this sermon series over the last couple of weeks and helping us to unpack and begin to understand what exactly is humble power. In my opinion, this is a <clears throat> excuse me, particularly relevant topic because the issue of power is around us all the time. I don't know if we think of it all in that way all the time, but the reality is we face power dynamics all the time in all kinds of different ways. For example, right now, our country is in the midst of a power struggle as different political parties are seeking to have their presidential candidate elected. And the hope and the thought is if they can get their candidate elected, that will give them more power and more say in what happens in our world, but specifically in our country. Those are power dynamics at play. If we are sports fans, especially football right now, whether it's for high school or college or the NFL, we root each week for our team to win. That is to conquer, defeat, make somebody a winner, make somebody a loser, and hopefully your team is on the winning end. Those are power issues at play. So a couple of weeks ago, if you were a Steelers fan, and I am, you are severely disappointed to discover, at least on that day a few weeks ago, our team was not as powerful as the Eagles on that particular day. And I've been hearing about that this morning, but those Eagle fans, they don't get much reason to cheer. So that was a good thing for them maybe on that day. I hope the power dynamics change in the future if those two teams come together again, but that's another story. There are power issues at play. If you are a parent and you tell your child to do something, you are exercising a form of power and authority over them. Likewise, if you're the child receiving that word of instruction or something from your parents, you know what it feels like to have that power held over you or influencing you in some way. For probably all of us in some way or another, we feel like we're at the mercy of different folks or different groups of people when it comes to power. For example, if your landlord tells you to do something or a government agency tells you to do something, or maybe you have a boss who has a large say ultimately in your livelihood, all of those involve different power dynamics. So when we look at the issue of power, it's not a question of if power applies to us. Rather, it's a question of how does power apply to us? And yet most of us spend very little time thinking about the issue of power. But if we're going to take following Jesus seriously, we would do well to unpack this issue and understand power from a biblical perspective. And that's really what this whole series is all about. For example, when we look in scripture, we see very quickly that the Bible gives us different ideas and understandings when it comes to power. Now, I don't have time right now to unpack each one of these very deeply, but there are four things I want to ask us to keep in mind as we look at power and how it relates to scripture. And the four reminders about power that I would lift up are this. Number one, the term humble power, it is not a contradiction. I realize in our world, the way we understand it, oftentimes we think those go against each other. That is not true. And we will especially see that in the scripture we look at this morning in John chapter 13. Secondly, I want us to realize we all have power. Every single one of us. We may not feel like it at times, but as Pastor Janet reminded us a couple weeks ago, Genesis chapter 1 reminds us we are all made in the image of God. We are made with infinite dignity and worth, and therefore in that there is power that God gives us. Number three, power itself is a neutral thing. Now, I know we use power a lot of times for good or for evil. It can be used for good or for evil, but it's how we use it that matters. Power itself is a neutral thing. And number four, power is ultimately a gospel-centered issue. 
It runs through the gamut of scripture. For example, we see God use God's creative power in Genesis to create something from nothing, to create life from nothing. Then we see human sin come along and it distorts power the way God intended it to be. And then eventually we see Jesus come onto the scene and reframe what power is intended to be and reframing it back to the way God intended it. So again, we see scripture throughout all of uh, power throughout all of scripture. Keeping that in mind, I want to invite us this morning to open up our Bibles. And specifically, if you can go to John chapter 13. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book in the New Testament. I am not sure this morning that there is a better picture of what humble power is all about than what we're going to encounter in the 13th chapter of John here this morning. Now, first of all, I want us to realize what's going on when we get to John 13. Jesus is at the end of his life. And he knows that he's not at the beginning of his life. He's not in the middle. He's at the very end. In fact, he's at the very last night that he will be on this earth. The cross is looming. Death is looming. I mean, the cross is literally almost looming upon him because it's going to happen the very next day. One of the things that's fascinating to me about the gospel of John, if you go through it, is this. And I think this is kind of a fun thing. If you start at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, going back to John chapter 2, every time Jesus does a miracle from John chapter 2 on, there's a growing sense of power with each following miracle. So the first one is good, but then the second one gets better, and the next one gets even better, and the next one's even better after that. So in John chapter 2, the very first miracle that Jesus offers is he turns water into wine. Now, that's a good miracle. I mean, I can't do that. I doubt any of us could do that on our own. But it's not really that impressive. I mean, it's kind of like the magician who pulls a rabbit out of a hat. It's good, but it's not like drop your mouth good. Like, wow, look at that kind of thing. But interestingly, Jesus keeps upping his game with each miracle after that first one until by the time you get to John chapter 11, when Jesus is through most of his ministry, it seems like Jesus reaches a culmination with the miracles that he's doing. Because if you go to John chapter 11, there Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So talk about power. Go from changing water into wine to now Jesus is defeating even death. It starts to blow your mind a little bit. Like this is a powerful, powerful guy. This is impressive stuff that he's now doing. So at that point, if you are a Jesus follower and you've been witnessing all of this and you see this increasing power that Jesus is demonstrating, at this point, you're probably starting to feel like, oh, finally, finally, this is the one we've been waiting for. If this guy can defeat death and he's able to, I mean, there's Lazarus. He was dead. Now he's walking. If he can defeat even death, he can defeat the Roman empire. And if he can defeat the Roman empire, he can free us. We Christians can now conquer and rule the world. That's how powerful this Jesus is. And now that Jesus is in control, now that Jesus is more powerful, that means we win. And someone else is going to lose. That means we, with our power and our force, we get to conquer and rule the world. Because what else do you do when you are the most powerful or you're following the most powerful leader out there? What else do you do? Jesus shows us. (laughs) I invite you to go to John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. And I want us to look very carefully at what Jesus does with his power. First of all, look in John chapter 13, verse 1. We hear this. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So we learn immediately where Jesus intends the focus of his power to be. His focus is on others, not himself. With all of the power that Jesus has, the focus now is going to be used that power for others, not himself. 
So one of the first signs that we see of God's power and the nature of God's power is that God's power is always focused on others instead of self. Now, I could stop right here. This is so counter to who we are. We could spend a whole bunch of sermons just on this one point because we think power is supposed to be used for ourselves. We do this all the time. The more we get, the more we think we need to have. The more privilege they have, the more privilege we think we should have. Think of it this way for just a moment. Lots of college students that I meet, they seem like they can live on almost anything. By the world's standards, they don't have a lot of power, resource, influence, and yet they find a way to get by. And yet as life goes on, it seems that we don't need just to try to get by anymore. We want more and more and more. Think about it this way in terms of a car. Again, if you're a college student, you are just happy to have a car that runs, <laughs> that you can turn it on and away you go. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It really doesn't even matter what it smells like. You are just happy it runs. But eventually you get a decent enough job. And now, you know, I don't want a car that just runs. I need a car that's, that's nice. That's, that's something that I've been looking forward to. And it's a little more than how it looks or smells. Like I want a nice car. And then eventually as life goes on, that's not enough. And you're like, there's always been that car that I dreamed of, sort of my dream car to have. And eventually you work your way to try to get that. Why is that? More begets more. Status begets status. Privilege begets privilege. That's just how we human beings are. I think of a lot of times in terms of celebrities. Think for just a moment. When it comes to celebrities, they have so much money and resource at their disposal a lot of times. So they even begin to buy things like yachts. They don't just spend a few dollars or even millions of dollars. Sometimes they spend billions of dollars on a yacht. I remember years ago reading about a celebrity. She had purchased a handbag, a purse for $5,000. That's insane to me. And you know that many celebrities or people of resource, they don't just have one home. They have multiple homes. And they're not just homes. They're like these beautiful, elaborate mansions. That's what we do. We get a taste of power or privilege, and we just want more and more and more. So any power or privilege that we get for ourselves, we turn around and use that power and privilege for ourselves. For example, think for just a moment, what is the goal of any company? The goal of any company is to use whatever power or resource it has to be bigger and better and more influential, to be better than it was, to be bigger than it was. And so any company is going to make that its goal. And you can think of any different one. The whole goal is just to become a better, you name it, Coca-Cola, a better sports team, whatever the case may be, they use their resources for themselves. What is a country's goal? A country's goal is to be able to make itself better and use its power for itself, for its own improvement. It's no different for you and I. What is our goal? Our goal is to use our power lots of times for our own betterment, to better ourselves. So here's Jesus at the height of his power. He can defeat even death. And what does Jesus choose to do? How does Jesus choose to use the power that he has? He shows us. He doesn't use it for himself. He gives it away. He does the opposite. Instead of using his power for him, he turns around and says, no, my love, my power is for others. In fact, we're told in John 13, 1, he loved them. That's the disciples, not himself. He loved them until the end. Now this phrase to the end, it's an interesting one. The Greek phrase is actually one called ice telos. And translators translate it in one of two ways. They either describe it about the nature of the quality of the love 
or the temporal nature of the love. So it can be translated as Jesus' love being showed to the full extent, that's the quality, or that Jesus loved them to the end, that's the temporal. Here's the cool thing in my mind. I think that this fourth gospel writer probably meant for both meanings to be used around this issue of love and ultimately Jesus' power. Because in choosing to love others, Jesus, what he is saying here is he's choosing to love them to the fullest extent, the deepest extent possible, and to the end forever. So what we could do in our English translation is we could say the love of Jesus here is revealed to its absolute fullest completion. Think about that for just a moment. That's incredibly powerful. Love to the highest, farthest degree, the deepest degree that our human language can convey and express. And how does Jesus choose to use this forever deepest love? By washing their feet. I cannot overstate to you how crazy this. This is, this is nuts on the part of Jesus. Jesus, in spite of who he was, he is God's son. He is majesty. He is divinity. And he chooses in that moment to give it away, to serve, to not hold on to his privilege, but to give it away. I'm guessing that many of us somewhere here, all those online, wherever you might be worshiping this day, I'm guessing at some point you've heard this story or example of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. The danger of that is that it begins to lose its impact and what that really means. Nowhere else in that time, nowhere else in that culture, nowhere else even in literature can we find where a master gets down and washes the feet of his followers or disciples. Never. It doesn't happen in Greco-Roman literature or any place else that we can find. And remember, this is a hot, dusty culture. Foot washing was a necessity. Now, it's kind of gross that we're going to put up a li- even just a small picture of what we're talking about here, of what it meant to wash people's feet. We're going to put up a picture that's really not even that gross. There are many more that are many more graphic, but we're trying to be at least a little bit careful. But it's not a pleasant thing. You and I know how it feels to have our feet washed, especially at the end of a hot day, even to get a shower at the end of a hot day. It feels good. But for somebody else to come to us, even today, and wash our feet... It stinks, literally. It is foul. We would not want to do that. And in those days, it's such a menial task. Even Jewish servants could not wash the feet of others. And yet here's the crazy thing. Jesus is. And he's doing it voluntarily. This is absolutely stunning. This God, divinity, majesty, Down on his feet washing. That's how Jesus chooses to use his power. By giving it away to others. And in doing that, he's starting to reframe what God's power looks like. Now, one of the ways that we know that Jesus is reframing power for us through this is he's giving us specific language here in John chapter 13 and uses this language to relate it to other events in the life of Jesus. So do me a favor. Look at John chapter 13 verse 4. And here's what we hear. That Jesus removed or took off his outer garment. Now the word used to describe this removal is the same verb used by Jesus to describe himself laying down or taking off, removing his own life. Knowing that that's what's going to happen at the cross. So if you look in other places like John chapter 10 verse 15 or chapter 10 verse 17 or chapter 13 verse 37 or chapter 15 verse 13. In those places Jesus is indicating taking off 
removing his life for our sake. It's the same verb that's being used here of Jesus taking off his outer garments so that he can serve. So what Jesus is doing in this foot washing is he's relating it to the power and the gift of life. At the same time, there's a description here of Jesus wiping the feet of his disciples with a towel. We see that in chapter 13, verse 5. It's the same word that Jesus used when he had his own feet anointed by a woman with perfume in John chapter 12. And then she wiped the perfume off his feet with her own hair. So what Jesus is doing there is he's taking something that looks very ordinary and he's deeming it to be holy. So what Jesus is ultimately doing here is he's using his power to turn something that you and I would consider otherwise disgusting or ordinary or menial in nature. And through God's power, it becomes something holy. This is the nature and the power of this God who turns our world's values upside down and instills new meaning within them. Now, in the ancient world, foot washing usually was used for at least two purposes. One of them was for personal hygiene. Literally, the foot washing happened for somebody coming into your house to clean them up. Remember, they've been walking on the road. They're in sandals. Their feet are dirty. Or maybe they've been walking barefoot. Their feet are gross and encrusted and have dirt all over them. So literally, for their sake, you clean them up for the personal hygiene. But secondly, foot washing served as an act of hospitality. Foot washing in that time, it was literally a way to welcome a guest into your home after a long journey to help them be refreshed. Part of the purpose was to welcome them in. So notice that when Jesus washes the feet of those disciples, he combines the role of servant and host so that in his cleaning, he's also welcoming. And isn't that what Jesus does for each and every one of us, even right now, wherever we might be in life? He welcomes us as well by saying, let me take your most disgusting, filthy ugliness and wash it away. Let me take your filth and I welcome you by making you clean and wiping it away. I wonder even right now what dirt, what filth we carry That Jesus is waiting and wanting to say to us, I want to welcome you. Let me welcome you by cleaning you and washing away your dirt. So look what Jesus is doing. He's using his power to clean, to welcome, and let service become an, an avenue of hospitality. Through this one act, Jesus is redefining what godly power does. And notice it's all others focused. It happens when Jesus lets go of the privilege he was afforded. Jesus offers a new form of power, humble power through love. And that's the model that you and I are invited into as well. Now, I can say that to us this morning and we hear that. And I'm guessing that we're thinking, well, you know, that's a nice thing. I would expect something like that from Jesus. He often does things differently than you and I do. And if I wanted to be a really good moral person or even think about following Jesus seriously, I should probably think about engaging this humble power myself. But I wonder truthfully if we even want to. I mean, we are people who like privilege. We are people when we have privilege, we want ever more of it. If somebody serves us a little bit, we want to be served a lot. It's just how we human beings are. We even set church up this way. Man, that sermon better be good. It better speak to me. 
I better get something out of it or I'm not sure that I want to come back. Hey, what did you think about the music? Did you like it? They better play music that I like and I can respond to and I can feel good about. Can you believe they didn't even serve me coffee when I came in today? What kind of a place is this? We do that because we like our privilege. We want other people to serve us. And it's ironic because almost anywhere else you go, that's what every place seeks to do. You go to a restaurant and they want to cater to you and serve you and do everything for you so that you'll come back. Or Amazon will seek to get your business by being as easy to use as possible. Even car dealerships, we want to serve you. But what's the purpose? So that ultimately you'll buy a car from them. Sometimes even in church we fall into that. Let's make everything as attractive and wonderful and easy for you as possible. So hopefully you'll be attracted and come here. And yet what Jesus says to us is it's not about your privilege. It's not about what you want. It's about offering our privilege to others. And it's hard. Look what happens to Peter here in verse eight. Peter won't even allow Jesus to fulfill this role of being a servant to Peter. Peter sees Jesus getting down on his knees in front of him to wash his feet. Remember, this hasn't happened before. And Peter's like, wait, whoa, 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 this is too much. Jesus, you are blowing my mind. You as my master, you are not going to do this for me. Hold up, Jesus. You ain't touching my feet. I've never seen this before, but just stop right there. You can't touch or wash my feet. It's too much. But look what Jesus does. Look at his response to Peter. And this response of Jesus holds the key to understanding what this foot washing is all about. This is so important. I want to make sure we catch this. If you look here, we see that Jesus' washing of Peter's feet is stipulated as a necessary condition for Peter's sharing in or being a part of life with Jesus. The word for sharing or being a part of here with Jesus, it's a word called meros. It means to have fellowship with Jesus or participate in life with him fully. So what this foot washing then becomes is a symbolic act through which Jesus shares his life and who he is. It shares his type of power in the world. And it's a power that gives up privilege. It doesn't seek to grab onto it. It's an act that draws those who share in it then into full relationship with God. And it shows us the full love and extent of the power of God when we do it. So if somebody's going to take them out of this act of foot washing, or if somebody's going to take them out of an act of being willing to serve, then one is removing themselves from the form of power that Jesus offers. Or said another way, if one demands that privilege be given to them, They are missing out on the power and the promise of this God who wants privilege to be given away rather than to be sought after. Now, this is crazy for Jesus to be doing this at all. Like, even if Jesus had been having a really good day, it would be hard to him picture picturing him saying, you know what? I'm feeling really good, guys. It's been a wonderful day. And in my generosity and good spirit, because it's been such a good day, I'm going to wash your feet because I'm just I'm just in such a happy mood. It would have been enough for him to do that. Like, what if Jesus had slept in that day till his eyes literally popped open and then he woke up and he had some eggs and bacon, although I guess as a Jewish man, he wouldn't have had any bacon that day. And then, you know, maybe he read like the Jewish, uh, you know, the Jerusalem Times newspaper kind of thing and just kind of went through that. And then maybe scrolled through his Facebook for a while and met a friend for coffee, took a nice brisk walk, feeling really good. And so at the end of the day, he's like, yeah, guys, you know what? It's been so good. I'm going to wash your feet today. That would have been enough, but it wasn't like that at all. It's Jesus's last night on earth. Death awaited. Literally the sin and weight of the world was upon his shoulders and he knew it. 
And he knew he was going to die the next day. He knew he was going to be crucified the next day. And yet, in spite of that, Jesus was still so willing to focus on others. He was fully present with them that he looked at his disciples. And despite everything that was on his mind, despite knowing it was his last night on earth, he looked at his disciples and said, still, let me serve you. Let me be fully present with you here and now so that I can serve you and let it be about you instead of me. If ever there was a night where Jesus would have had the room to say, guys, I need you. You got to serve me tonight because tomorrow I'm dying. This would have been it. And yet Jesus says, even now, even now, I am here to give my privilege to you. One of the frequent things that happens in our house, this happens way too often, is I'll be standing in front of Jen, like literally this far away, like inches away. And she looks at me and she'll say, where are you? And I want to be like, I'm right here. Like, I mean, I, I'm right here. And what she means, though, is physically I might be present, but I'm thinking about an issue at the church or a struggle that I'm having. And so my mind is a million miles away. And Jen sees that immediately. I'm not fully present. Well, here's Jesus under the worst of circumstances, and he's absolutely fully present, saying, let me use my privilege for you. What Jesus is doing here in John 13 is he's asking nothing less than that the disciples place themselves completely into his hands. That they start to discard their images of who or what they think power is all about and start to follow the model of power that Jesus is exemplifying for them. By living into life and power on his terms rather than the world's terms. And when that begins to happen, a new kind of power is introduced into a world. We would call it humble power. A power defined by love. A power defined by others instead of ourselves, A power not defined by might but in service. A power defined not in brute strength but in humble persistence. And make no mistake about it, this is powerful. In our world, we might think, that can't be, no way, this is not powerful, but we've lost our imaginations in our world. We tend to think that power comes in the form of might and having more strength or more numbers. And Jesus says, no, 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 open your imaginations. There's something way more powerful if you would just be open to it. I was trying to think of different images that I could offer to explain this. And just one of the images that came to mind for me was this. And you can picture this in your mind. I mean, just picture water that's moving kind of slowly. But it's running on the same path year after year after year. And what happens eventually? That slow-moving water has the ability literally to cut down through layer after layer after layer of hard, solid rock. You wouldn't think it at first. It's just a gentle moving stream. There's nothing significant about it. And yet with time, it has the ability to cut through layer after layer of rock. Hurricane Matthew's winds and waters did significant damage But Hurricane Matthew wouldn't even touch going through layer after layer after layer of rock. God's humble power is kind of like that. And that's what Jesus offers to all of us. And that's what Jesus invites us to share with everyone else. And yet, as Peter's response shows us, and this is hard for you and I. I don't know if I want that kind of love, Jesus. I don't want you to wash my feet. Are we willing to accept that love and are we willing to offer it to others? You might remember there's a great story in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20. There's two brothers, James and John. They've already been chosen by Jesus. They are one of his inner 12. They've already been hanging out with Jesus. They already know Jesus. They were nothing special. Jesus in his grace chose them. And yet James and John, they've tasted the satisfaction of the inside track and they like it. 
They've tasted the charms of the inner circle, and they like it. They've tasted that they are self-important. They've been granted admittance while others have been left outside of the 12 chosen ones, and they like it. The lure of privilege calls to them. And so at the opportune time, they come and they say, Jesus, you've given us status. You've given us privilege. But Jesus, could we have even more? And truthfully, it's not James and John who first ask it. It's their mom. And so you parents out there, don't we do that for our kids? We want to get them as much privilege and as much status as possible. And we'll do almost anything we can to make sure they get it. The request is for James and John to sit at the left and the right hand of Jesus in this kingdom when it comes. In other words, Lord, give them even more privilege. And Jesus responds by asking a question related to power. He says, are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? Meaning, are you able to risk everything in the way that Christ shortly will? Are you able to give your power away rather than to seek it? And in that response, Jesus denies their request for status and privilege. At the end of the day, Jesus doesn't care about status. He says it's for the father to decide that, not you and me. What we do know is that in the kingdom of God, it'll be somebody we never, ever expect who gets the privilege of being first in the kingdom of God. Somebody who is never seeking power and privilege to begin with. So want to ask us, can we really, are we willing to try to live into this type of power, this humble power? Are we willing even to try it? Because let's be honest, we like our privilege. We like to be served. And we know that we struggle with this as a church as a whole. It's one of the reasons why almost every week we say something like, would you all be willing to serve on the tech team? Because we're stretched so thin right there. And we're not willing to do that. Because it would mean a little bit more time out of my week and out of my schedule. And I don't want to be inconvenienced that way. And I'd rather have somebody do that for me rather than me do it for them. When it comes to issues like justice, and we talk about those who are hungering in our world and those who are hurting in our world and those abused in our world and all the other isms in our world that make our world hurt, very seldom do our hearts break and do we shed tears for them because we're so focused on what I next need and how I'm going to serve myself rather than serving those who are hurting in our world. When we say things to our congregation directly like, hey, God is doing amazing things here. Will you support what God is up to by tithing and by giving generously? And the only reason we don't do those things lots of times is because we choose our privilege over God's. And we'd much rather use the resources for me and my happiness and my comfort comfort rather than using it for God's in different ways. And we see it at other times. When was the last time we intentionally reached out and sought to invest in somebody else, especially somebody who was struggling in life and maybe didn't know the love and the generosity and the grace of Jesus and said, I will walk with you in such a way that you will come to know and experience God's love and God's grace through my life as I learn to serve you. How long has it been since that occurred in our life? All of us in our own way say, don't you ask me to do the dirty stuff. Don't you ask me to do the stuff that no one else sees. You serve me because that's our human nature. So when I ask the question, church, are we willing to wash each other's feet? Are we willing to get dirty? Until we say yes, not only are we missing out on God's great and humble power, but ultimately we are keeping the world from experiencing God's great and humble and wonderful power. Thankfully, though, it doesn't end there. Despite our stubbornness, despite our Peter-like resistance, God still comes and God still says, I will find ways to make you clean. I will find ways to help you learn to let go of your privilege. And I see glimpses of it. You do too. I see times when we're starting ever so slowly to let go of ourselves and seek to serve humbly other folks. 
I see this especially in our children's ministry, folks. I wish sometime you could get the chance to walk through First Nursery, Monday through Friday morning. I do that sometimes. And when I come through, here's what I see. I see teachers down on their knees, talking to the kids at their level, using language they can understand, helping them, serving them, loving them, so that those kids know what it's like to be loved and accepted. And in that process, they are taught. And in that process, a foundation of love is laid for them. That is humble power. I saw it this summer with Transform. We had five different satellite sites, over 400 participants, over 100 jobs completed, 113 actually. That's a sign of humble power among us, at least the start of it. I see it every Friday morning at 6 a.m. when people say, I'm willing to give up a little bit of sleep in order to come and to pray and to invite God to come and be among us and be alive among us. That's a start of humble power. I see it when our Stevens ministers meet meet folks in their darkest places and help lead them to places of light. I see it when Pastor DG goes into homes and serves communion to people, sometimes for the very first time. Those are signs of humble power. And I see it in things like the Acts Network, which we are living into, where we're willing as a church to say, we will send somebody like Mitch to go out into the world and to meet people on their turf because we know the world is changing. And we know that no longer do people on their own wake up on Sunday morning and say, I'm going to go out and find a church for myself. That might happen occasionally, but it's certainly the exception rather than the rule. And so we learn to say, we've got to figure out ways to go out and meet people on their turf and go serve them, whether we ever then physically see them in this space or not. That is the start of humble power. And you know what's required in every one of those instances? A willingness for us to say, God, it's no longer about me. It is no longer about my privilege and what I'm going to get out of it. It is me saying, yes, Lord, use my power, my influence to be given away for others, for you. So church, how do we do this? How do we live into God's humble power? Well, it's pretty simple, but at the same time, it's really quite significant. It's three things that we need to do. Number one, to live into God's humble power, all of us need a bath. We need God's love, God's grace to wash over all of who we are and wipe us clean. And so if we're here this day and we have never received the bath of God's love, if we have never said, Lord, I welcome you into my heart and into my life and into my soul, and Lord, would you wipe away my sin and my brokenness and my mess and my filth and my ugliness and my dirt. I invite us this day when we share together in our prayer time, get a bath, be washed completely in the blood and the life of Jesus. And then if that has happened in our life and we've been cleansed in our souls in Christ, the second step to receive humble power is to know that every day we continue to make mistakes and every day we continue to bring new dirt into our lives and it needs washed off. And so no longer do we need a complete bath, but instead we come and we say, Lord, would you wipe my feet? Would you wipe the dirt from my life that has been accumulated since yesterday or an hour ago or five minutes ago? And we say, Lord, would you wash my feet? In doing that, we begin to receive humble power. And then the third thing we do is that if we have received the bath ourselves and if our feet have been washed, we say, Lord, Use me to wash the feet of others. Use me to offer your love and your grace and your life to others. Use me to use my privilege for others. And if we are willing to say yes to those things, we know that God's humble power 
will begin to change not only our lives, but also the lives of all that we touch in our community and ultimately in our world. So I invite us this day to say yes. Yes to the humble power of Jesus Christ. Amen.